Welcome to Radio Readalong, a podcast for the whole family, featuring dramatic word-for-word readings of classic stories for all ages. In today's episode, Adam Andrews reads chapters 43 and 44 of Great Expectations by Charles Dickens. You can follow along in your own copy of the story, or sit back, relax, and let your mind's eye do the work. Previously in Great Expectations. At Pip's urging, Magwitch recounts his history, including his career with Compison the Swindler, whom he hates with a burning passion. Pip and Herbert realize with shock that Compison is the very man who jilted Miss Havisham at the altar years ago. Now, let's join the story in progress. Chapter 43 Why should I pause to ask how much of my shrinking from Provis might be traced to Estella? Why should I loiter on my road to compare the state of mind in which I had tried to rid myself of the stain of the prison before meeting her at the coach office with the state of mind in which I now reflected on the abyss between Estella in her pride and beauty and the returned transport whom I harbored? The road would be none the smoother for it, the end would be none the better for it. He would not be helped, nor I extenuated. A new fear had been engendered in my mind by his narrative. Or rather, his narrative had given form and purpose to the fear that was already there. If Compeyson were alive and should discover his return, I could hardly doubt the consequence. That Compeyson stood in mortal fear of him, neither of the two could know much better than I and that any such man as that man had been described to be would hesitate to release himself for good from a dreaded enemy by the safe means of becoming an informer was scarcely to be imagined. Never had I breathed, and never would I breathe, or so I resolved, a word of Estella to Provis. But I said to Herbert that before I could go abroad, I must see both Estella and Miss Havisham. This was when we were left alone on the night of the day when Provis told us his story. I resolved to go out to Richmond next day, and I went. On my presenting myself at Mrs. Brandley's, Estella's maid was called to tell that Estella had gone into the country. Where? To Satis House, as usual. Not as usual, I said, for she had never yet gone there without me. When was she coming back? There was an air of reservation in the answer which increased my perplexity, and the answer was that her maid believed she was only coming back at all for a little while. I could make nothing of this, except that it was meant that I should make nothing of it, and I went home again in complete discomfiture. Another night consultation with Herbert after Provis was gone home, I always took him home and always looked well about me led us to the conclusion that nothing should be said about going abroad until I came back from Miss Havisham's. In the meantime, Herbert and I were to consider separately what it would be best to say, whether we should devise any pretense of being afraid that he was under suspicious observation, or whether I, who had never yet been abroad, should propose an expedition. We both knew that I had but to propose anything and he would consent. We agreed that his remaining many days in his present hazard was not to be thought of. Next day, 
I had the meanness to feign that I was under a binding promise to go down to Joe, but I was capable of almost any meanness towards Joe or his name. Provis was to be strictly careful while I was gone, and Herbert was to take the charge of him that I had taken. I was to be absent only one night, and on my return the gratification of his impatience for my starting as a gentleman on a greater scale was to be begun. It occurred to me then, and as I afterwards found to Herbert also, that he might be best got away across the water on that pretense, as to make purchases or the like. Having thus cleared the way for my expedition to Miss Havisham's, I set off by the early morning coach before it was yet light and was out on the open country road when the day came creeping on, halting and whimpering and shivering, and wrapped in patches of cloud and rags of mist like a beggar. When we drove up to the Blue Boar, after a drizzly ride, whom should I see come out under the gateway, toothpick in hand to look at the coach, but Bentley Drummle? As he pretended not to see me, I pretended not to see him. It was a very lame pretense on both sides, the lamer because we both went into the coffee-room where he had just finished his breakfast and where I ordered mine. It was poisonous to me to see him in the town, for I very well knew why he had come there. Pretending to read a smeary newspaper long out of date, which had nothing half so legible in its local news as the foreign matter of coffee, pickles, fish sauces, gravy, melted butter, and wine, with which it was sprinkled all over, as if it had taken the measles in a highly irregular form, I sat at my table while he stood by the fire. By degrees it became an enormous injury to me that he stood before the fire, and I got up, determined to have my share of it. I had to put my hand behind his legs for the poker when I went up to the fireplace to stir the fire, but still pretended not to know him. "'Is this a cut?' said Mr. Drummle. "'Oh,' said I, poker in hand, "'it's you, is it? How do you do? I was wondering who it was who kept the fire off.' With that I poked tremendously, and having done so, planted myself side by side with Mr. Drummle, my shoulders squared and my back to the fire. "'You have just come down?' said Mr. Drummle, edging me a little away with his shoulder. "'Yes,' said I, edging him a little away with my shoulder. "'Beastly place,' said Drummle. "'Your part of the country, I think.' "'Yes,' I assented. "'I am told it's very like your Shropshire.' "'Not in the least like it,' said Drummle. Here Mr. Drummle looked at his boots, and I looked at mine, and then Mr. Drummle looked at my boots, and I looked at his. "'Have you been here long?' I asked, determined not to yield an inch of the fire. "'Long enough to be tired of it,' returned Drummle, pretending to yawn, but equally determined. "'Do you stay here long?' "'Can't say,' answered Mr. Drummle. "'Do you?' "'Can't say,' said I. I felt here, through a tingling in my blood, that if Mr. Drummle's shoulder had claimed another hair's breadth of room, I should have jerked him into the window.' Equally, that if my own shoulder had urged a similar claim, Mr. Drummle would have jerked me into the nearest box. He whistled a little. So did I. "'Large tract of marshes about here, I believe,' said Drummle. "'Yes, what of that?' said I. Mr. Drummle looked at me, and then at my boots, and then said, "'Oh!' and laughed. 
Are you amused, Mr. Drummle? No, said he, not particularly. I'm going out for a ride in the saddle. I meant to explore those marshes for amusement. Out of the way villages there, they tell me. Curious little public houses and smithies and that. Waiter. Yes, sir. Is that horse of mine ready? Brought round to the door, sir. I say, look here, you, sir. The lady won't ride today. The weather won't do. Very good, sir. And I don't dine because I'm going to dine at the ladies. Very good, sir. Then Drummle glanced at me with an insolent triumph on his great-jowled face that cut me to the heart, dull as he was, and so exasperated me that I felt inclined to take him in my arms, as the robber in the storybook is said to have taken the old lady and seat him on the fire. One thing was manifest to both of us, and that was that until relief came, neither of us could relinquish the fire. There we stood, well squared up before it, shoulder to shoulder and foot to foot, with our hands behind us, not budging an inch. The horse was visible outside in the drizzle at the door. My breakfast was put on the table. Drummle's was cleared away. The waiter invited me to begin. I nodded. We both stood our ground. Have you been to the grove since? said Drummle. No, said I. I had quite enough of the finches the last time I was there. Was that when we had a difference of opinion? Yes, I replied very shortly. Come, come, they let you off easily enough, sneered Drummle. You shouldn't have lost your temper. Mr. Drummle, said I, you are not competent to give advice on that subject. When I lose my temper, not that I admit having done so on that occasion, I don't throw glasses. I do, said Drummle. After glancing at him once or twice in an increased state of smoldering ferocity, I said, Mr. Drummle, I did not seek this conversation, and I don't think it an agreeable one. I'm sure it's not, said he, superciliously over his shoulder. I don't think anything about it. And therefore, I went on, with your leave, I will suggest that we hold no kind of communication in future. Quite my opinion, said Drummle, and what I should have suggested myself, or done, more likely, without suggesting. But don't lose your temper. Haven't you lost enough without that? What do you mean, sir? Waiter, said Drummle, by way of answering me. The waiter reappeared. Look you here, sir. You quite understand that the young lady don't ride today, and that I dine at the young lady's? Quite so, sir. When the waiter had felt my fast cooling teapot with the palm of his hand, and had looked imploringly at me, and had gone out, Drummle, careful not to move the shoulder next me, took a cigar from his pocket and bit the end off, but showed no sign of stirring. Choking and boiling as I was, I felt that we could not go a word further without introducing Estella's name, which I could not endure to hear him utter, and therefore I looked stonily at the opposite wall, as if there were no one present, and forced myself to silence. How long we might have remained in this ridiculous position, it is impossible to say, but for the incursion of three thriving farmers, laid on by the waiter, I think, who came into the coffee-room unbuttoning their great-coats and rubbing their hands, and before whom, as they charged at the fire, we were obliged to give way. 
I saw him through the window, seizing his horse's mane, and mounting in his blundering, brutal manner, and sidling and backing away. I thought he was gone when he came back, calling for a light for the cigar in his mouth, which he had forgotten. A man in a dust-colored dress appeared with what was wanted. I could not have said from where, whether from the inn-yard or the street or where not. And as Drummle leaned down from the saddle and lighted his cigar and laughed with a jerk of his head towards the coffee-room windows, the slouching shoulders and ragged hair of this man whose back was towards me reminded me of Orlick. Too heavily out of sorts to care much at the time whether it were he or no, or after all to touch the breakfast, I washed the weather and the journey from my face and hands and went out to the memorable old house that it would have been so much the better for me never to have entered, never to have seen. Chapter 44 In the room where the dressing table stood, and where the wax candles burnt on the wall, I found Miss Havisham and Estella. Miss Havisham seated on a settee near the fire, and Estella on a cushion at her feet. Estella was knitting, and Miss Havisham was looking on. They both raised their eyes as I went in, and both saw an alteration in me. I derived that from the look they interchanged. "'And what wind,' said Miss Havisham, "'blows you here, Pip!' Though she looked steadily at me, I saw that she was rather confused. Estella, pausing a moment in her knitting with her eyes upon me, and then going on, I fancied that I read in the action of her fingers as plainly as if she had told me in the dumb alphabet that she perceived I had discovered my real benefactor. "'Miss Havisham,' said I, "'I went to Richmond yesterday to speak to Estella, "'and finding that some wind had blown her here, I followed. "'Miss Havisham motioning to me for the third or fourth time to sit down, "'I took the chair by the dressing-table, which I had often seen her occupy. "'With all that ruin at my feet and about me, "'it seemed a natural place for me that day. "'What I had to say to Estella, Miss Havisham, "'I will say before you presently, in a few moments.' It will not surprise you. It will not displease you. I am as unhappy as you can ever have meant me to be. Miss Havisham continued to look steadily at me. I could see in the action of Estella's fingers as they worked that she attended to what I said, but she did not look up. I have found out who my patron is. It is not a fortunate discovery, and is not likely ever to enrich me in reputation, station, fortune, anything. There are reasons why I must say no more of that. It is not my secret, but another's. As I was silent for a while, looking at Estella and considering how to go on, Miss Havisham repeated, It is not your secret, but another's. Well? When you first caused me to be brought here, Miss Havisham, when I belonged to the village over yonder, that I wish I had never left— I suppose I did really come here as any other chance boy might have come, as a kind of servant, to gratify a want or a whim, and to be paid for it. Aye, Pip, replied Miss Havisham, steadily nodding her head. You did. And that Mr. Jaggers— Mr. Jaggers, said Miss Havisham, taking me up in a firm tone, had nothing to do with it, and knew nothing of it. His being my lawyer— 
and his being the lawyer of your patron is a coincidence. He holds the same relation towards numbers of people, and it might easily arise. Be that as it may, it did arise, and was not brought about by anyone. Anyone might have seen in her haggard face that there was no suppression or evasion so far. But when I fell into the mistake I have so long remained in, at least you led me on, said I. Yes, she returned, again nodding steadily. I let you go on. Was that kind? Who am I? cried Miss Havisham, striking her stick upon the floor and flashing into wrath so suddenly that Estella glanced up at her in surprise. Who am I, for God's sake, that I should be kind? It was a weak complaint to have made, and I had not meant to make it. I told her so as she sat brooding after this outburst. Well, 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 she said. What else? I was liberally paid for my old attendance here, I said, to soothe her, in being apprenticed, and I have asked these questions only for my own information. What follows has another, and I hope more disinterested, purpose. In humoring my mistake, Miss Havisham, you punished, practiced on, perhaps you will supply whatever term expresses your intention without offense, your self-seeking relations. I did. Why, they would have it so. So would you. What has been my history that I should be at the pains of entreating either them or you not to have it so? You made your own snares. I never made them. Waiting until she was quiet again, for this too flashed out of her in a wild and sudden way, I went on. I have been thrown among one family of your relations, Miss Havisham, and have been constantly among them since I went to London. I know them to have been as honestly under my delusion as I myself, and I should be false and base if I did not tell you whether it is acceptable to you or no, and whether you are inclined to give credence to it or no, that you deeply wrong both Mr. Matthew Pocket and his son Herbert if you suppose them to be otherwise than generous, upright, open, and incapable of anything designing or mean. They are your friends, said Miss Havisham. They made themselves my friends, said I, when they supposed me to have superseded them, and when Sarah Pocket, Miss Georgiana, and Mistress Camilla were not my friends, I think. This contrasting of them with the rest seemed, I was glad to see, to do them good with her. She looked at me keenly for a little while, and then said quietly, What do you want for them? Only, said I, that you would not confound them with the others. They may be of the same blood, but believe me, they are not of the same nature. Still looking at me keenly, Miss Havisham repeated, What do you want for them? I am not so cunning, you see, I said in answer, conscious that I reddened a little, as that I could hide from you, even if I desired, that I do want something. Miss Havisham, if you would spare the money to do my friend Herbert a lasting service in life, but which from the nature of the case must be done without his knowledge, I could show you how. Why must it be done without his knowledge? she asked, settling her hands upon her stick that she might regard me the more attentively. Because, said I, I began the service myself more than two years ago without his knowledge, and I don't want to be betrayed. 
Why I fail in my ability to finish it I cannot explain. It is a part of the secret which is another person's and not mine. She gradually withdrew her eyes from me and turned them on the fire. After watching it for what appeared in the silence and by the light of the slowly wasting candles to be a long time, she was roused by the collapse of some of the red coals and looked towards me again, at first vacantly, then with a gradually concentrating attention. All this time Estella knitted on. When Miss Havisham had fixed her attention on me, she said, speaking as if there had been no lapse in our dialogue, "'What else?' Estella, said I, turning to her now and trying to command my trembling voice, you know I love you. You know that I have loved you long and dearly. She raised her eyes to my face on being thus addressed, and her fingers plied their work, and she looked at me with an unmoved countenance. I saw that Miss Havisham glanced from me to her and from her to me. I should have said this sooner, but for my long mistake. It induced me to hope that Miss Havisham meant us for one another. While I thought you could not help yourself, as it were, I refrained from saying it, but I must say it now. Preserving her unmoved countenance and with her fingers still going, Estella shook her head. I know, said I, in answer to that action. I know. I have no hope that I shall ever call you mine, Estella. I am ignorant what may become of me very soon how poor I may be, or where I may go. Still, I love you. I have loved you ever since I first saw you in this house. Looking at me perfectly unmoved, and with her fingers busy, she shook her head again. It would have been cruel in Miss Havisham, horribly cruel, to practice on the susceptibility of a poor boy, and to torture me through all these years with a vain hope and an idle pursuit, if she had reflected on the gravity of what she did but I think she did not. I think that in the endurance of her own trial, she forgot mine, Estella. I saw Miss Havisham put her hand to her heart and hold it there as she sat looking by turns at Estella and me. It seems, said Estella very calmly, that there are sentiments, fancies, I don't know how to call them, which I am not able to comprehend. When you say you love me, I know what you mean as a form of words, but nothing more. You address nothing in my breast. You touch nothing there. I don't care for what you say at all. I have tried to warn you of this. Now have I not? I said in a miserable manner, yes. Yes, but you would not be warned, for you thought I did not mean it. Now did you not think so? I thought and hoped you could not mean it. You, so young, untried, and beautiful, Estella, surely it is not in nature. It is in my nature, she returned, and then she added with a stress upon the words, It is in the nature formed within me. I make a great difference between you and all other people when I say so much. I can do no more. Is it not true, said I, that Bentley Drummle is in town here and pursuing you? It is quite true, she replied, referring to him with the indifference of utter contempt, that you encourage him and ride out with him, and that he dines with you this very day. She seemed a little surprised that I should know it, but again replied, quite true. You cannot love him, Estella. Her fingers stopped for the first time, 
as she retorted rather angrily, "'What have I told you? Do you still think, in spite of it, that I do not mean what I say?' "'You would never marry him, Estella!' She looked towards Miss Havisham, and considered for a moment with her work in her hands. Then she said, "'Why not tell you the truth? I am going to be married to him.' I dropped my face into my hands, but was able to control myself better than I could have expected, considering what agony it gave me to hear her say those words. When I raised my face again, there was such a ghastly look upon Miss Havisham's that it impressed me even in my passionate hurry and grief. Estella, dearest Estella, do not let Miss Havisham lead you into this fatal step. Put me aside forever. You have done so, I well know, but bestow yourself on some worthier person than Drummle. Miss Havisham gives you to him as the greatest slight and injury that could be done to the many far better men who admire you and to the few who truly love you. Among those few there may be one who loves you even as dearly, though he has not loved you as long as I. Take him, and I can bear it better for your sake. My earnestness awoke a wonder in her that seemed as if it would have been touched with compassion if she could have rendered me at all intelligible to her own mind. I am going, she said in a gentler voice, to be married to him. The preparations for my marriage are making, and I shall be married soon. Why do you injuriously introduce the name of my mother by adoption? It is my own act. Your own act, Estella, to fling yourself away upon a brute? On whom should I fling myself away, she retorted with a smile. Should I fling myself away upon the man who would the soonest feel, if people do feel such things, that I took nothing to him? There, it is done. I shall do well enough, and so will my husband. As to leading me into what you call this fatal step, Miss Havisham would have had me wait and not marry yet. But I am tired of the life I've led, which has very few charms for me, and I am willing enough to change it. Say no more. We shall never understand each other. Such a mean brute! Such a stupid brute! I urged in despair. Don't be afraid of my being a blessing to him, said Estella. I shall not be that. Come, here is my hand. Do we part on this, you visionary boy, or man? Oh, Estella, I answered, as my bitter tears fell fast on her hand, do what I would to restrain them. Even if I remained in England and could hold my head up with the rest, how could I see you, Drummle's wife? Nonsense, she returned. Nonsense. This will pass in no time. Never, Estella. You will get me out of your thoughts in a week. Out of my thoughts? You are part of my existence, part of myself. You have been in every line I have ever read since I first came here, the rough common boy whose poor heart you wounded even then. You have been in every prospect I have ever seen since on the river, on the sails of the ships, on the marshes, in the clouds, in the light, in the darkness, in the wind, in the woods, in the sea, in the streets. You have been the embodiment of every graceful fancy that my mind has ever become acquainted with. The stones of which the strongest London buildings are made are not more real or more impossible to be displaced by your hands than your presence and influence have been to me, there and everywhere, and will be. Estella, 
To the last hour of my life, you cannot choose but remain part of my character, part of the little good in me, part of the evil. But in this separation, I associate you only with the good, and I will faithfully hold you to that always, for you must have done me far more good than harm. Let me feel now what sharp distress I may. Oh, God bless you. God forgive you. In what ecstasy of unhappiness I got these broken words out of myself, I don't know. The rhapsody welled up within me like blood from an inward wound and gushed out. I held her hand to my lips some lingering moments, and so I left her. But ever afterwards I remembered, and soon afterwards with stronger reason, that while Estella looked at me merely with incredulous wonder, the spectral figure of Miss Havisham, her hand still covering her heart, seemed all resolved into a ghastly stare of pity and remorse. All done, all gone. So much was done and gone that when I went out at the gate, the light of the day seemed of a darker color than when I went in. For a while I hid myself among some lanes and by-paths, and then struck off to walk all the way to London. For I had by that time come to myself so far as to consider that I could not go back to the inn and see Drummle there, that I could not bear to sit upon the coach and be spoken to, that I could do nothing half so good for myself as tire myself out. It was past midnight when I crossed London Bridge, pursuing the narrow intricacies of the streets, which at that time tended westward near the Middlesex shore of the river. My readiest access to the temple was close by the riverside, through Whitefriars. I was not expected till tomorrow, but I had my keys, and, if Herbert were gone to bed, could get to bed myself without disturbing him. As it seldom happened that I came in at that Whitefriars gate after the temple was closed, and as I was very muddy and weary, I did not take it ill that the night porter examined me with much attention as he held the gate a little way open for me to pass in. To help his memory, I mentioned my name. I was not quite sure, sir, but I thought so. Here's a note, sir. The messenger that brought it said, Would you be so good as to read it by my lantern? Much surprised by the request, I took the note. It was directed to Philip Pip, Esquire, and on the top of the superscription were the words, Please read this here. I opened it, the watchman holding up his light, and read inside, in Wemmick's writing, DON'T GO HOME! Radio Read-Along is a production of the Center for Lit Podcast Network, featuring weekly episodes from the world's best stories. Want to listen ahead? Find this entire novel, along with an ever-expanding library of classic literature recordings, inside the Pelican Society at www.pelicansociety.com. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Until next time, happy reading, everyone. <laughs>